I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, Monica. Jennifer, I'm super excited to dive into today's interview. I know that our audience loves learning about biophilic design. Today, we're exploring some new territory in that world. Yes, today we're diving into topics like mass timber, the living building challenge, and how we can design buildings that are climate resilient and meant to last long into the future. Yeah, and we're talking 500 years into the future. I know, isn't that so wild? Okay, so our guest today is architect Kathy Berg. Kathy is a partner at ZGF Architects in their Portland office, where her experience really runs a gamut from mixed-use developments to corporate offices to higher education and many things in between. You know, her work is really inspired by nature, and she works to balance beautiful design with conservation, resource efficiency, and human well-being. So she's a firm believer in the built environment's ability to affect our happiness, but she's also closely worked with some friends of the podcast like Bill Browning. So today we're discussing two of Kathy's projects in particular, the PAE building, Pay Building, located in Portland, which is the first ever developer-driven living building. In a nutshell, this is huge because it shows that there is real investor potential in buildings that set extremely high efficiency standards. And second, the Portland Airport main terminal expansion, which just combines gorgeous biofluid design and mass timber with some really incredible cutting edge technology. Yes, you're going to love this interview. So here we go with Kathy Berg. Kathy, we're so happy to have you on the podcast. I know we spoke a few months ago, and after we spoke, I called Monica immediately and said, we have to get her on. (laughs) So thank you for being with us today. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We're super excited. Your background is amazing. And I cannot wait to dig into all of the projects you've been working on. I know usually one of the first things you sort of ask people is like, you know, just to give a little bit of background, how did you get into architecture? Like what was sort of that something as a child or something in college that sparked you? And then what sort of brought you to ZGF today? Yeah, architecture is fun because everybody has a story about how we got here, right? I grew up in a small town in Ohio, about 40 miles west of Columbus. And if you would have found me in my childhood, I probably would have been riding my bike outside or building with my Legos indoors. And I have no idea if reconfiguring my Lego town 47 times a day um, (laughs) had anything to do with me being an architect, but I've always liked to make things, build things, create things. So when I started looking to go to college and I figured I had to have something to help me make the choice, I decided to look at what career I wanted to go into and read architecture on the list of possibilities and ended up at the University of Cincinnati. What was great about the program that I went through there is it was a co-op program. So every other quarter of school was interlaced with a work program within an office. So I got to see a lot of different types of architecture. And my final internship was with the firm that I'm with now, ZGF Architects in Portland. Oh, 
So I am exactly. a 28-year veteran with one job post-graduation. So that is so wow. <laughs> Kathy, I didn't even realize that you were there 28 years. That's phenomenal. It has been a fun ride. Yeah. When you do the co-op at Cincinnati, that led you to Portland. Like you were able to do that out of state. Is that how that worked? Right. We could go anywhere in the country. In ah. fact, you could go anywhere in the world that you could get wow. a job. I also That's did incredible. a travel quarter, which is how I met my husband as one of those those study programs. And it was it was really great to get out of Ohio and see different states, see different places. And the firm that I landed in, I think what I love about ZGF is we have a really diverse portfolio. We work on a lot of different types of projects. A lot of them are mission-driven for the clients. So every day is a learning opportunity. That's so cool. Well, I mean, you've been doing this for quite a while. I guess my one big question is, have you seen this interest in nature? I mean, were you always interested in nature as a kid because you were always outside, but also have you seen this like major shift in interest in terms of like biophilic design and nature in architecture? Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. I love to be outside as a kid. In fact, I think one of the first quote unquote structures that I ever built, we had a tree in my backyard and I would climb it with a pile of library books and I would take a swing set seat, jam it in the crotch of the tree and I'd tie myself in there to read all afternoon. And I didn't know it at the time, but it was just this place as a child that I felt rejuvenated. I could watch the world below me. I didn't know the terms of prospect and refuge when I was growing up, but I just knew how cool it was to have this observation point to see what was going on. So when I came to design, I brought that love of nature with me. Part of living in the Pacific Northwest is being out mountain biking and hiking. And so when I think about being inside of a building, half the time, I really want to be outside of the building. And mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's been great to see a lot of clients that I work with also embracing that understanding that natural elements, natural environments, connection to the outdoors can be healthy, can be stress relieving, can increase productivity. So it's good on so many levels for almost any project type. Well, I think, you know, you kind of worked on, I mean, you worked on a lot of projects we're going to talk about now, but it's what I think of as sort of the ultimate certification these days is the living building challenge. And so that building, which is called the PAE building, which you can explain why it's called that, is an incredible building, but it's one of the early living buildings for, to be developer driven, which I think is interesting versus say a foundation funding it or coming out of an education. We have a living building here, the Candida building at Georgia Tech. But tell us a little bit about, maybe actually first, if you can, tell us a little bit about the Living Building Challenge, you know, so our listeners understand what that is, because it's an incredible program, pretty intricate, isn't happening mm -hmm. everywhere, you know, it is a pretty intricate challenge to go after, but I'd love you to explain it to our listeners. Sure, absolutely. So the Living Building Challenge grew out of the ILFI, the uh, International Living Futures Institute based in Seattle. And it was really an effort to push buildings to being restorative. How can you design something that would actually use only the resources that are available to the building on its site. As my colleague at PAE likes to talk about, it's as if you were a tree living on the side of a mountain. You get to use the rain that falls on the base of your tree. You get to take advantage of the sun and you need to be providing then back to the environment oxygen and other benefits and shade for the community around you to live in. And that's really the way that Living Building Challenge thinks about designing a building. So at the end of the day, there are seven petals that include net zero water. 
So water that falls on the site is treated on site. Net zero energy, actually net restorative energy. So we create more energy within a building on an annual basis than you consume. The third biggest and most challenging pedal is to select materials that are healthy. There's a whole list of materials that we know are not good for humans or animals. And so those materials, you go through a vetting process to try to eliminate as many as you possibly can from the building. And if it's just truly impossible, there are exceptions, but you know we aim to get to a really healthy conclusion. The remaining pedals focus around selecting appropriate sites, developing equity for the community, and health and happiness, which I think is just a great thing to think about when we talk about design and architecture. A building is not just serving us on the shelter level or on the service level. It actually can inspire us. It can improve our mental health. So there's components to making sure that the buildings we design are are addressing that as well. So that's the task we set out with the PAE Living Building and how that project came to light. PAE, who worked on that Candida building that you referenced, they are... Oh, uh, I didn't know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They probably are one of the mechanical, electrical, and an engineering firm focusing on different disciplines of engineering that have the deepest bench, I think, at this point of living buildings. They actually have two of their offices in living buildings. One is the Bullet Center in Seattle. The other is our project in Portland. And we had worked with them on the Rocky Mountain Institute in Mm -hmm. Colorado. Got it. Which was a fantastic experience for our team. We really learned how to work together and create something that met the ILFI living building pedal challenge. So after we designed the Rocky Mountain Institute headquarters, PAE realized they were in need of new space in Portland, and they knew that they wanted to be in another living building. So they reached out and put the team back together, and we started working on their project, which we started pre-pandemic. We went through the pandemic. We went through social unrest. We went through ice storms and wildfires and finished it a couple of years ago most exciting thing for me right now is I get to go to work there every day. Amazing. So cool. <laughs> That's amazing, amazing, Kathy. Kind of an unusual situation. Our office is under construction. So for the summer, I've been able to go in and really see what it's like to be in a living building. Yeah. And it's great. It's in a historic district. So when you walk up to the building, we had to design it to fit into the Italianate architecture, which is really beautifully detailed with wow. tall windows and a lot of repetitive elements. But when you walk in the front door, you walk into this mass timber building. It's built, the structure is all wood. And as you go to the stair that we built to try to encourage people to use a stair in the five-story yeah. building instead of an elevator, you get the scent of wood every morning, which is really beautiful. There's lights in the stairwell that change color throughout the day, depending on how many people are using the stair. So the more people going up oh. and down, the colors shift. Wow. And then my final favorite thing is, and this drove me crazy for the first week, I'll be really honest. I started working <laughs> in the building And the windows would be open in the morning and partway through the morning, they would close and they close automatically. So it's a really noisy electronic sound that takes about 20 seconds and you would hear this, this happening. And I recognized why it was happening, right? It was getting too warm outside. The building was shutting down so that it could help to stay cool. And at first it it was, it, it was disconcerting. It wasn't something I'd heard in a building before, but then I realized it was the building breathing. 
it was the building taking care of itself. And now I've grown to embrace, like, I want all of my buildings to be doing that and reminding me that I also should be maybe changing my behavior, depending on what the climate's doing. Oh, Kathy, that's so cool. Like thinking about first of all, living in a living building, but then how that affects us. Because I always try and think of like our spaces, like you say, spaces can make us well or unwell. And once we understand that, I think, again, we're not taught that. So once you start to understand, actually tune in, you're like really, like you just said, it kind of was like really jarring you when you figured out that sound. But then when you realize what it was doing, then you're like, oh, it's breathing like I am. So that's a good thing. It's fascinating. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It has been a great learning tool. And I've I, there's things that I will take from this project that I'll do the same next project, those things that I'll take forward and do differently. But certainly all of the connection to nature that's in this building has been, it's been really enjoyable to be around. And some of those things we set the table for, but other people bring the beauty to it. So there's a mural on each floor of the building that a local mm. artist did. And she used an idea we had about connecting to the Northwest landscape. So one focuses on all of the elements of the coastal environment in Oregon. One focuses on the high desert and one focuses on the alpine environment. And so at each level, it's a wayfinding, but it's also this reminder of, hey, it's five o'clock at night. Let's go get outside. Let's take a weekend and go for a hike and see one of those spaces. So it's really, really beautiful so way for cool. people to experience nature. I love that. And did those murals meet then the beauty petal as part of it? Certainly was part of the story that we put together to explain how we were connecting to the beauty petal. In addition to exposing a lot of the wood materials inside, there's also a beautiful land acknowledgement piece that a, a local artist, Native American artist, did in the lobby that ties to the story of the Columbia River and how it influenced the region. So just some really nice moments in the building that connect back to the regional landscape beyond. That's amazing. I'm curious because... This is such an incredible building, but the people are there. Do they understand like what's happening to them or how it benefits them? Or are there teachable moments or are there plaques or like how do you educate people that are there? What could be happening to their bodies when they're seeing vistas or when they're prospecting rep, whatever all the you know, 15 principles that you might be implementing. So how would they know what's happening to them? It's an excellent question. I will say that we're spoiled with this building because the PAE, the engineering firm that's working in there, their mission is to work towards saving land and water, you know, designing systems that are focused on this. So we have a very captive audience, but I will say 3,000 people have toured the building since it's been open for just under two years. Oh and gosh. one of the things that I love about those tours is everybody that comes, comes with a particular focus. They might want to see the mass timber. They might want to see the wastewater systems that we've used. We are disconnected from the city sewer. We fully compost human waste. We actually are now selling urine turned into f plant food at the local nurseries here in Portland. So when you go to the bathroom, you're actually creating plant food. So people come into the building and they want to see these different systems. They want to see how we made it work. And then they get the chance to maybe take away something that they weren't looking for. So that's really how we've focused the education process, as well as, you know, there's lots of information online about the building that people can, if you Google it, I think it would come up or search for it on the web. It'll come up pretty quickly. Other details that I think are interesting is that 
it can be fully disconnected. Or I guess if there's a brownout or a power outage, it can go for a hundred days, completely disconnected from the grid. It's sort of, I read it was like a low energy mode. And so maybe you can explain what that means, but that's fascinating with the way the world is today and all these climate emergencies. It's inevitable that we're going to have climate breakdowns and have a need for this. Explain that a little bit, how that works in the building. Sure. The power system in this building is really fascinating. And I think we saw the need for it really clearly in some of the climate events that the building dealt with during construction. As I mentioned, we had a horrible ice storm that power went out for some time. We had wildfires that made it impossible for the workers to work on the building. And so the way that we approached how we were going to generate power for the building was to start by looking and seeing how much could we generate on the roof of our building with a with a PV array, so photovoltaic panels that you see on top of most buildings, right? And we couldn't have those panels visible from the street because the design requirements for the neighborhood, for the historic neighborhood, wouldn't allow that. They wanted to make sure that the building would fit in. Having said that, the neighborhood limit was 75 feet of height. So we knew whatever panels we put on the roof, we'd get great production for the life of the building because nobody around us can build taller. Okay. So... Uh-huh. There were good things about the site and there were limitations on the site. To get all the power we needed, we needed an additional array. We needed more uh-huh. panels. And the contractor we were working with at the time was also building an affordable housing development five miles to our north that wanted a PV array, but couldn't afford the upfront cost. So the way that we paired to solve both problems is our project purchased their PV array gave them the benefit of the power. So their actual power bill is significantly decreased. And our project took the credit for developing that. And we monitor that to make sure that we are operating at net zero. So it was a great equity story (laughs) combined with a power generation story. And the final way that we got to net zero was in the district we were in, it is possible this building could generate more power then the network could take on, right? We couldn't backfeed over a certain amount of energy without tripping the fuse like you would if you were blowing your hair dry in the bathroom and you mm-hmm. flip the circuit, right? So we ended up with a battery storage system that is in oh. the first level of the building that okay. collects extra capacity. And that's what would allow the building to run for 100 days, okay. up to 100 days. And the way that that works is not only is the building really, really efficient, And that battery system, when it comes online, then provides the energy. But there also would be a few things that they could shut down in an event to stretch out the length of time that the energy would last. That's incredible. And the resilience of that is, I mean, is that almost unheard of? I mean, was that sort of the first building that has that kind of technology or are there others around the country? I will certainly say that it is a direction that a lot of projects are exploring and pursuing. I will say PAE is at the head of the curve in terms of studying these systems. But to our knowledge, this is the first developer-driven living building in the country. For us, what that means is investors would be interested in investing in the project because they knew there were good returns and we could prove that the building could operate as a living building. And that's a big hurdle, right? We're just trying to get the word out to the community and to developers, hey, you can do this. You can have this great building and you can have your investment returns too. Yeah, that's incredible. 
I think that's the big concern is that when you do something like that, like living building, oh, it's a it's special or it's extra or, oh, you needed a nonprofit to help you out with it. But I like to see that it's like that was, to your point, a developer driven building. I think that's a really good point for our listeners to think about because we talk a lot about if the financial markets aren't there. So many things can't be moving forward and it can't just be a special one off, right? It has to be a model that can be replicatable. (laughs) Replicable is a term we struggle with all the time, for sure. (laughs) I love it. And you have to break some things along the way. I was just meeting earlier today with this same team and we were talking about if nobody's ever willing to try something new, then it's impossible to discover what could work. And so there were things that were a challenge on this project. There were things that were a challenge on previous living building projects, but we were able to take lessons learned from previous projects and make this one better. And we hope that the lessons we're learning on this project will make the next one easier. That's interesting. Can I, because Monica and I've been talking about this one topic of mass timber for so long, but we could never find somebody that really could speak to it. So Kathy, when you and I connected and you're like, oh, we specialize in mass timber. (laughs) It's just, yes, yes, (laughs) we found the person we've been waiting for. So because we're just so fascinated about this whole topic, can you dive into the role of mass timber and your work with it and how you really discovered using it? Absolutely. Mass timber is a particularly fun material to work with. I'll start with you know, defining it first for those who may not come across it all the time. Wood in buildings has been common and has been around for thousands of years. Mass timber has been around for over 100, close to 150 years. And what we reference when we talk about that is typically glue laminated timber, cross laminated timber, or nail laminated timber dow laminated timber, mast plywood. These are materials where you take multiple pieces of wood and compress them together with adhesives to create large structural elements. Many of us, I grew up in a church that had gorgeous glue laminated wood timber beams that were curved and created a beautiful space. Most of us have probably been in a mass timber building at some point in our lives. But in the last couple of decades, specifically in Europe and now really accelerating in North America, we've seen an explosion of some of these new mass timber products like cross laminated timber and nail laminated timber. And those are the ones that we've had a lot of fun to work with because they've increased our ability to create longer spans, to expose the structure inside buildings. So we actually don't have to use as many materials. We can leave the wood exposed and it's a beautiful finish. Many of these materials go up faster and are installed quicker than their steel or concrete counterparts. And the embodied carbon benefits are also huge for those of us looking at low carbon buildings. That All the carbon that ends up in that tree is sequestered in in the building for the life of the building and are significantly better again than steel and concrete for that purpose. But I think at the end of the day, what we really love is these buildings are just gorgeous. You can be very expressive with the shape of the wood, with the connections of the wood and create these moments that are akin to being outdoors. Well, and you mentioned the smell. I think that's a wonderful uh, bonus. I'm a woodworker and I'm known for going into my garage and just moving wood around. So I get that scent of wood again. Right. And I know that Bill Browning is a fan of yours. You know, we work with Bill often on projects. He worked on the Rocky Mountain Institute with us. We're currently working with him on a project at the port of Portland, the airport here in Portland, you know, and he talks about all of the sensory components of wood and the visual intricacy of the grain and how people respond to that. 
we don't, can't always put it into words, but we just know we like it when we walk in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the airport terminal, the Portland terminal. Yeah. And this is an expansion, which I think is interesting. Basically, it's going to accommodate, right, really looking into the future of multi-million numbers of new passengers that are going to be flying and it's going to be able to accommodate them. I think it's doubling in the footprint. Is that right? Of the airport or something like that? It's quite a bit bigger. Correct. Yeah. It's related oh, yeah. to a lot, of other, a lot of other projects that are happening there too. So a little bit hard to calculate. But if you've been in the Portland airport, it's basically lifting off the whole front section of the building and creating a new roof. That's amazing. Well, and I like the idea that you guys are renovating it and expanding it because I think that also helped, I believe, with the carbon, right? Because you're not just tearing it down. You're using the structure that's there. But talk about what you're doing there, um, you know, how it's biophilic, how it picks up from the surrounding beauty of the Northwest, because it seems like an incredible project. We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out? What's that, Monica? The (laughs) Biophilic Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes. And I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Sarah B for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26th, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. It started as a very small project and it grew over time. And I just had the chance to tour it last week. And I can tell you that it is a breathtaking moment when you walk into this new space. So the team that worked on it wanted to create a space that was truly reflective of the region. So when you flew to the Portland airport, which has long been known for its historic carpet, people take pictures of their feet on the carpet. They wanted to now flip up flip that perspective the other direction and have you look up and say, wow, what a gorgeous place. And so in working with Bill Browning and and others, the design team also wanted to address all of the needs of travelers. And we all know when you go to the airport, it's stressful. You're either dragging two kids through or you're late for your next meeting and you're hoping you make the flight on time. And, you know, no matter who you are or you're flying through the airport for the first time to see your grandchildren and you're not really sure of all the changes they made since the last time you flew, 
it's hard. And so the idea of bringing biophilia into the airport, bringing nature in was really important. And they came upon this idea that it should feel like a walk through the forest. So when you see this nine acre canopy that is built predominantly of wood, but with some steel members to support that as well, you look up and you see this intricate lattice of wood and they frame in skylights. So you see this dappled light coming down to the floor. It really feels like you're walking through the forest in one of those, you know, kind of early evenings when the light's streaming through. It's a lovely space. Does the carpet stay or has it completely gone now? <laughs> I don't really know that that carpet will ever be able to go away for it is, yeah. it is so famous. But the, Isn't that funny that it's like a social media phenomenon. People like have socks and rugs and it's wild. And keychains and even yeah. the soccer team here played in Portland jerseys, right? That have the carpet on it. I, I think it goes to that notion of how important buildings and space are, how we identify and recognize ourselves in spaces. So I think we're all really excited to see that in this project. And one of the things that I'm most excited is about how we source the wood to build the roof. Oh, tell us about that. Yeah. If you think about going to buy some carrots. If you go to the farmer's market, you know where they were purchased. You can meet the farmer that grew them and he can tell you whether the ingredients were, the fertilizers were organic or not, right? If you go to the supermarket, you don't always know that. And it's really similar with building materials. It is possible just to say, well, I want, you know, wood beams and I want them this big and to never know where they came from. But that wasn't good enough for the client or for the design team. So they set out to decide where they would get the wood and recognized that by being specific about where they got it, they could really influence the local communities in a positive way. And they also wanted to get wood that was sourced sustainably. So they decided anywhere that a salmon could swim would be the region that they would look at. Those watersheds would be where they would look at for forests that were willing to be transparent about their forestry practices and provide wood to the project. So they met with wow. local tribes. Wow. They wow. met with local farmers. They went to the mills. So you can imagine to get a piece of wood to market, there's a landowner who's harvesting that wood. They send it to a mill. That mill has to keep track of that sustainably harvested wood in a certain way, take it through their mill, and they have lumber that comes out the other side. That goes to a manufacturer that then compresses it into Glulam or CLT, and then that goes to the project site. So they went through this entire supply chain all the way back to the landowners and said, would you help us be transparent and can we support you in doing good sustainable practice? So. If you think of everything from clear cutting on one end, which is the worst type of forestry practice, to thinning and selective work that can help reduce forest fires, we wanted to be on that positive end. And as a result, you know, we see a lot of these tribes and communities, they can walk in, the, the individuals that actually worked on this will be able to walk in and say, that wood came from our property. And Amazing. that wood is from our family mill. So we're just really excited about that story and kind of taking that outside in one more step. That's beautiful, Kathy. And I think like you just kind of gave me an aha because I never really thought, I mean, I've read a lot about wood and I know where my vegetables are coming from, like you just said, but I never thought about wood and the, the people that it's, you know, the land that it's growing on and then being able to be like, this is ours and we're sharing it with the world and how beautiful that is. Just like a piece of fruit, just like a vegetable and what a gift that is to give to someone else and that you're celebrating that's really powerful. 
it's a really personal story to be involved with a building, right? I mean, we all know these buildings we want to be creating. We want them to be standing 500 years from now if we can, because to your point, retrofitting a building is the most sustainable building you can do. Not building at all is even better, (laughs) but certainly we don't want to build a building and tear it down and build it again. So the more care we can put in and the more connectedness that our communities can have to our buildings, the better we'll take care of them and the longer they will last. Well, I mean, it's incredible. And I just, I can't imagine the storytelling with those people being able to walk in and have that experience. Two other aspects of the airport, and I think that the PAE also has this because obviously where you guys are with seismic activity earthquakes, that both structures were built to withstand a pretty major seismic event. And I think it's this one is that there's a curtain wall system that like will move almost two feet. Is that true? How, how is that even possible to put something like that together? It's really interesting to me. It is certainly hard to wrap your mind around. And I, I actually just got to see this in place again last week. So it's a little easier to describe. But if you can imagine, the entire roof was assembled in three large sections out on the runway. So if you were flying in and out of Portland, you would have been able to look out the window and see this roof prefabricated. Inside the building, they very carefully that we were remodeling, they very carefully went in and installed 28 new columns that come up like a V. So they hit a single point on the floor, they V up to the top of the roof. And when the building was driven into place in 29 sections, basically on these massive tractor wheels, they brought it in and set it down, reconnected it so that it sits on these columns. And where it sits on the columns almost looks like a dish sitting on the top of a a point. And that is what allows it to move and shift. So the entire roof can move and slide on those columns if it needs to. And then we'll settle back into place because it has that kind of cupped dish shape at the end of an event. Oh my gosh. That's (laughs) incredible, Kathy. Oh my God. I wish I could take personal credit for it, but the structural engineering team, the KPF that came up with this, I mean, they are just, this has been a, it'll be a 10 year project. It has been a passion for these teams and there's so much talent to figure out how to make this work. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, you know, where, where I live, we have geothermal is throughout the community and some of our commercial buildings have it as well. But our largest commercial building right now is like under 40,000 square feet. Yep. And we drop that geothermal loop in a man-made pond that's sort of an amenity, right? But this, the airport has a, a ground source heat pump, which I know, total nerd right now, that supports it. How big of a well? Like, how did you get, where... where? <laughs> <laughs> to build that. And Monica's flustered. She's so excited. Question. I know. Sorry. But like just understanding, you know, I mean, it's incredible that it's all because that, that obviously helps with the fossil fuels and savings and carbon footprint. But where did you drill? Where did that? Is that under the runway somewhere? Where did that go? Well, that is the benefit of working on a project at that scale, right, is the land that it takes to operate in the airport gives you a lot of capacity to be able to look. So it is across the sections of the port property. What's been great about being able to explore solutions like that is then taking those to future projects and beginning to understand how we can look at ground source for future projects. So we've been studying that for some projects just across the river that we're working on and continuing to look for more opportunities. I think the challenges there are making sure that we're designing the wells to work with the local underground water conditions and being very sensitive in the way we do that. So certainly was a great 
fit for the port here. And we're looking for other projects that we can continue to expand that technology. We'll be right back after a quick break. I'm Michael Severs, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Stanley L. Silverfield, a first lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find The Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you hopeful for like this work that you're doing now and you're seeing such traction, especially, I guess, in the past five to 10 years, are you hopeful for more people to be educated, to understand, to be excited and to utilize mass timber and other sequestering materials and to use more biophilic design? Are you seeing more interest and are you hopeful about it? Absolutely. I mean, people come looking for it now. It used to be that we'd have to go to a meeting and say, hey, this is an option and we think we can make it work. And there would be a lot of concern and trepidation. Now, I I really feel like once somebody goes in and sees a building like this, they're ready to engage and they're interested in exploring it. So what we're really excited about are seeing the different types of projects that this is starting to show up. And we have everything from a childcare facility being made out of cross-laminated timber, which what better group to make highly sustainable and healthy buildings for than, than our youngest our youngest kids. I have a sports, a professional sports facility that will be finishing in the next month or two. And that really focused on using timber and bringing the outside in because these professional athletes, they almost never get time outdoors. This is a basketball team in San Antonio, Spurs, you might've heard of them. Mm-hmm. Um, When we were talking to their group and traveling with them, we saw that they spent so much time in buses, inside gyms, in hotels, in the bowels of the spaces that they compete in, and almost no time outside. And so when we were designing their practice facility with the client, they really wanted to make sure that we created opportunities for them to train outside, to eat outside, to recover outside. So we have beautiful recovery gardens that they can walk through and to take meetings outside. So we have five very focused different spaces that they can step out, still have privacy, still have security and spend time in nature. So lots of different project types coming to it. Probably the next two that we're working on now and hope to see built soon are in healthcare and also laboratory buildings. Oh, wow. I'm really glad you brought that up, by the way, Kathy, because I remember that we talked about that with a sports team. I thought was just blew my mind. I didn't think about sports teams are usually indoors practicing, and I never thought about that. So I'm glad you brought that back up. Well, and they travel. There's a lot of, uh, you know, they travel east to west, crossing time zones constantly. Their internal clocks are constantly confused about where they are. And there was a lot of research that went into when teams travel west to east, they tend to perform more poorly than when they travel east to west because they're working against the time zone. So they're tired. It's kind of the same reason we see struggles when we have daylight savings time, right? There's more crashes when you don't get that hour of sleep in the spring. They saw the same thing in the athletic performance. And It's exciting to work with clients who are doing this professionally, but what's even better is taking that knowledge and now being able to apply that to projects like healthcare or laboratory spaces or workspaces that everybody can benefit from. I know Bill Browning is really big into this, and but where do you as a firm and as your clients sit on post-occupancy studies? 
It's sort of like the building's built. All right, we're all done. Bye-bye. Enjoy. And it's so important to have more and more of these studies to not only have the building that you can go walk and experience, but to be able to provide that research for whoever, financial markets, another client. Where are you guys in that? And are you able to do it? Or is there somebody that's a good partner in the area that's been with you? Really glad you brought that up. We have a fantastic individual in our firm, Dr. Flavia Gray, who has been taking point on developing a post-occupancy work that we've been doing. We love to do it in-house because we can ask a lot of follow-up questions. We can really dig in. We have done out-of-house POE as well, but we really believe that a client for us is not a one-and-done type of relationship. What we want is a client that will always come back. And part of making sure that a client's really thrilled with your work is that it's still great after 5, 10, 15 years and that we learn from it and continue to improve on it. So Flavia has been an amazing addition to our team and is really helping us to understand better how we can go further with our designs and making sure we capture those lessons learned and communicate them out very broadly to our teams. That's really exciting to hear that you have an in-house person focused on it. Cause I know that is a big thing that Bill asks a lot. And, and we think about how can we support, whether that's like a funder, you know, to educate people that it's really important to put dollars behind those. So, so it's very cool to hear. As we're wrapping up here, is there anything we, I mean, I know there's probably a million other projects. There's a great one in Barcelona. We don't have time to talk about, but like, <laughs> you know, it sounds like the Spurs project is super cool. Healthcare is so important. We all know, I think the built environment is so important to recovery. Anything else about the firm or your work that we haven't touched on or you want to share? Probably the closing moment goes back to some that, that I have is something that goes back to what we were talking about a little earlier, which is thinking about buildings as 500-year buildings. <clears throat> That's something that the PAE project really started to think about. What does that mean? And in the design process and in the construction project, are we setting up a building that really can be serviceable for 500 years? Of course, it has to be properly maintained. Some things will probably have to be replaced over the life of the building, but can it serve multiple functions? Can it be flexible, resilient? And I think that's the kind of conversations we want to be having around the projects that we're looking forward to. So like you mentioned, the project in Barcelona, really excited to explore mass timber there on a lab project and see how far we can take the sustainability. Uh, we've been looking a lot at mental health. UCSF, we have a fantastic behavioral health sciences building that's kind of turned mental health inside out and said, instead of putting these spaces locked up and behind walls and around the corner, let's make beautiful spaces for people that are dealing with mental health. Let's create biophilic environments that make them feel good and invite everybody into understanding that mental health is a component of our overall health. Absolutely. Well, hopefully you'll share all this data once you, once you have it, because this is also fascinating. I think the more educated we all are, the healthier we all are. So it's uh, incredible work, Kathy. So thank you so much. And how do we follow you? How do we support you? What can we share? Are you on LinkedIn, like Instagram? Where are you and how do we support? I am definitely on LinkedIn. I will admit I am a horrible social media connection um, because <laughs> okay. I'm often very busy, but I do love to see what everybody else is doing. You can also see ZGF's work at ZGF.com. We have 800 fantastic professionals who love what we're doing and are very passionate about the environment and human performance and design and would love to stay connected with others who have this passion for 
biophilia and great design. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It has been a joy. And I think our listeners learned a ton. I know I did. So thank you again. Same. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thanks for all you're doing. So as per usual, Jen, I found the conversation (laughs) fascinating and rewarding. You know, I love all of our guests. But the idea that we're designing a building to really last 500 years, I think is such an incredible thing we should all be aspiring to. We talk so much about long-term planning and visioning on this podcast, and the built environment seems like a really tangible way to start implementing those solutions in the not-too-distant future. Yes, I completely agree. It does seem like in the modern world, we've gotten really used to just short-term thinking and short-term gratification. So it's heartening to see a commercial architect firm who recognizes the need to shift that mindset. Somewhat related to that, I want to touch on the fact that PAE building is the first developer-driven living building, which seems like a really major progress to me. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, developers and investors see the living buildings can be just as profitable, if not more so than typical buildings, that's going to drive more of them to be built. So I can only imagine that that would have a pretty significant snowball effect. Yes, I was also really struck by some of the built-in climate resilience Kathy talked about in both of the buildings. The PAE building can run on its own energy for 100 days, totally removed from the grid. And the earthquake measures taken at the Portland airport are just truly unbelievable to me. Yeah, that was pretty mind-blowing. The last thing I want to point out is the emphasis that ZGF places on post-occupancy studies. Like I know we've talked a lot about that with Bill Browning and how vitally important those studies are for demonstrating the power of biophilic design. Like people need case studies, they need research, they need the metrics. So I loved hearing that they're doing that, that they actually have somebody in-house who is 100% dedicated to those evaluations. Because in my mind, it really is the missing piece for making biophilic and net zero architecture a real building standard. Well, as always, Monica, I couldn't agree more. (laughs) We really need that research and analysis to really truly demonstrate the benefits of biophilic design, especially for the decision makers who might be more skeptical. Yep. So we have tons of resources in our show notes. We highly encourage you to check out, including some cool images of the project so you can see them and not just hear us talk about it. So we'll be back in a couple weeks. Talk to you later, Monica. Bye, Jen. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the biophilic movement.